but at least I am close to my notes. So, very good. <clears throat> Preliminaries, I'll beg your pardon. I have a little congestion, so I'm going to ask your pardon now, and if I need to take care of that, um, you'll understand. In our first session, we want to look at God who is infinite in being and perfection, words drawn from Westminster Confession 2.1, but certainly not original to Westminster Confession, but really something that has been confessed by Christians down the ages uh, of all varieties. To begin, I want to look at Exodus chapter 3, two verses no doubt familiar to you, and then we'll ask the Lord's help uh, during our time together in this session. This is the holy and the inspired word of God, so let us pay careful attention to it. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus you shall say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt you say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name unto all generations. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, you do sit enthroned above the circle of the earth, and all the inhabitants of the earth are but as grasshoppers before you. Lord, we are as a speck of dust in the scales and a drop of water, and even that exaggerates. We are compared to you nothing. You are all in all, the one whose name is I am, the one who is infinite plentitude of being. Lord, as we contemplate this truly incomprehensible mystery of your infinity. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us hearts to receive the things written in Holy Scripture, that you would give us minds to contemplate truthfully based upon those things. Lord, that we may, though not comprehending your infinitude, but that we may even catch that glimpse of the very truth of it, and may our hearts be ravaged by the sight of it. Lord, we pray that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit this afternoon in this session and even in the sessions to follow, that we may be brought near to you to worship, to, endure, to enjoy, to adore you, and to know you more fully. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. In the confession, as we've mentioned, we hold that God is infinite in being and perfection, this conference has been titled Infinite Splendor, the Attributes of God for All of Life. I hope that you knew, even in looking at that title, that there was no way that any number of speakers with any number of hours would ever be able to actually meet the task of giving you that, the infinite. We're not here to contain the infinite. We're not here to comprehend the infinite. But we are here to see him and to know him as he's revealed himself. And to even, if I might put it this way, perceive as opposed to comprehend uh, the infinity of his glory. This infinitude of God is a decisive feature in distinguishing God from all creatures, and it also forms a basis for our unending praise. Nevertheless, there are philosophers and theologians who find infinity to be objectionable for several reasons. The great process philosopher Alfred North Whitehead thinks that an infinite God renders him too impersonal and too indefinite, too impersonal and too indefinite. A, a later process theologian, Howard Burkle, says that infinity, quote, causes God to have no definite or intelligible structure. He is everything indiscriminately lumped together and thus amorphous. This means that infinity causes perfection to mean formlessness, and formless means imperfect, 
Thus, infinity destroys perfection. Close the quote. Of course, in our confession, we're saying that he's infinite in perfection, not in spite of perfection. For the process theologian, for the one who holds that God's being is open or not complete or not truly boundless, God must be definite in order to be personal. We'll say more about this in a few moments, this language of definiteness. Beside portraying him as too much like an indefinable abstraction, some are also concerned that an infinite God uh, is simply unable to <coughs> care for individuals. We are finite, we are limited, we have each our own little circle of cares and concerns, and it would just seem like an infinite God is a, is a being too big, too far beyond, too distant, too abstracted from the concrete, from the particular, as to be of any particular help. He's of help, but not particular help, given that he's not a particular limited thing. Can an unlimited being care for my limited concerns? In fact, Whitehead even goes as far as to say that infinity will drive inexorably toward a kind of tyranny. If God is so infinite and so unbounded, he will, as it were, destroy and swallow up everything around him. A God who is infinite is a God who can't be near you and a God who can't know you by name a God who can't care for your cares and for your concerns. And yet I want to submit, to be a little stark about it, that precisely the opposite is the case. That it's precisely because God is unbounded in being and perfection, because of his boundless plentitude of being, that he's actually able to care for you so perfectly. The reason he can care for the little minute details of our lives is because of his infinitude, not in spite of it. His infinitude does not lock him away from us. His infinitude is precisely that which grounds his unspeakably uh, intimate nearness to us. In him we live and move and have our being because he has it Plentifully, we have all things from him. Life, breath, and all things, Paul says in, in Acts 17.25. We come to the one who actually is all in all, the one who is boundless in being and perfection, and it's because of his boundlessness that we find him to be such a source of everything that we require. Life, breath, and all things, inner man, outer man, all of this is supplied to us by God because of his infinite plenitude of being. I like to say even to the critics, Put the shoe on the other foot for a moment and just try out what it would be like to worship a finite God. Think about the implications of that for your worship. Think about the implications of that for your prayer life. Think about the implications of that when you need help. Maybe he'll come through. Maybe even probably. But perhaps not because there are limits to God on that theology. I want to unfold this consideration of God's infinity uh, in three considerations. The first, just surveying some of the biblical material regarding God's immeasurable uh, being. And then focus particularly on his infinity of being and then infinity of perfection. And then as a final takeaway, consider some of the practical implications of this great reality uh, for our lives. First then, I want us to consider God's unfathomable greatness... Uh, or immeasurable greatness as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. And uh, Dr. Master has already pointed us to the locus classicus 
For all talk about God's immeasurability, Psalm 145, the first three verses. I want to look at these together, and then I have a few other texts after this that we'll consider as well. In this passage, and I say the Lucas Classicus because if you open any systematic theology, um, whether that's by a father, a medieval, a a reformed theologian, uh, nine times out of ten, this is going to be the first text that they go to to prove to you that God is boundless. And so we begin reading the words of David with this way. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. I'm going to pause for a second, and I take the liberty to interrupt any quotation that I'm making uh, to insert a few comments along the way. Uh, and so here I just want to say, uh, even this, you, uh, you can see right out the gate that we're talking about blessing God's name forever and ever, endless praise. Now, in the mind of the, in the, mind of the critic or of the unbeliever, immediately that sounds like tedium. That sounds like boredom. Praise, 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 and never-ending praise sounds like monotony writ large. He goes on. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. The late Christopher Hitchens once described the God of Judeo-Christianity as a cosmic megalomaniac. Praise me, praise me, praise me. Don't stop. Praise me, praise, don't stop. Praise me, praise me. Forever and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And then you think to yourself, who could be worth that? How could that be the right thing to give anyone? Look at verse 3. First, he gives you the reason why. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Because he is great, that's why forever and ever. Why great praise? Because a great God. Now the question might come into your mind. Well, that's great. God's the greatest of the great. But how great? The text helps you with that as well. Staying in verse 3, he says, And his greatness is unsearchable. I'm reading that in the New American Standard. Probably a little more literally, uh, his greatness, some translations say no man can fathom. Or his greatness is unfathomable. He does use, in fact, that language of a unit of depth in water. A fathom is a unit of depth in water. And to fathom, which is a verb, uh, to fathom is something you do. It is to measure the fathoms, the depths of water below a boat. And so in the olden days, to measure the depth of water below the boat, you would take a measuring line, probably weighted and maybe even notched, And you would drop the line into the water and let it sink down until it finally hit the bottom. And at that point, you would have fathomed the greatness of water underneath your boat. And you'd know whether you were in deep ocean, perhaps your line couldn't reach the bottom and you knew that you weren't near a shoreline, or perhaps if you got down to 20 or 15 fathoms, you knew you were coming in on a landmass, even if you couldn't see it. And yet here's the thing about... God, uh, it says that no man can fathom him. No one can measure him. No one can size him up. In fact, the reason might be twofold. On the one side, I think we can all acknowledge that we just don't have the measuring equipment adequate to it. In other words, I just don't have enough brain. Pooh Bear once said that he was a bear of small brain. Well, perhaps you feel that way when you come to this doctrine of God, that you feel yourself of small brain. Uh, But that's not the only reason. 
It's not just simply that you don't have the intellectual equipment. It's not because you don't know Latin or Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic um, that you can't get to the bottom of things. It's not because you're not a good memorizer or don't have a photographic memory. Um, it's not because your IQ isn't off the charts. That's not the reason you can't get to the bottom of things with God. It, it's actually more profound than that. And it's simply this. There is no bottom there. It's not that you just simply lack the line to measure it. It's that it's, in fact, immeasurable. No one can fathom. There is no getting to the bottom of God. This conference, which is about God, is not about getting to the bottom of God. We're not going to end on Thursday uh, with Dr. Beakey and have, as it were, plumbed the depths. As we plumb the depths, we find out that the depths are infinite, and we never, as it were, really search them out. The only one who, as it were, plumbs the depths of God and knows the deep things of God is the Spirit of God himself because God himself is boundless. The only one who knows a boundless being is a boundless knower, God himself. So the first thing we want to say is that God is immeasurable. God does not lie within the scope of something that we could, as it were, size up. There's a boundlessness in his greatness. By the way, this is, this is why the forever and ever praise because there's no, put it differently, there is no last great thing about God. And when you finally get there, say, that's it, I'm done. I have now enumerated all the great things about God. You can't enumerate them. They're innumerable, they're unquantifiable, they're impenetrable, they're endless. Now, you could have one of two responses to this. You could respond with despair. If I can't figure him out, if I can't get to the bottom of God, then why am I spending my time on him. That's obviously not the response of the psalmist. Or you could respond with delight. The psalmist responds with delight. And he says, great is the Lord. I will praise him day after day, night after night. You think of the heavens. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. How much more we who are made in his image should we be pouring forth endless praise? Isaac Watts once began a hymn. Give to our God immortal praise. Undying praise, unceasing praise. Why? Because you never, as it were, finish with God. And therefore the praise and the glory that you give to him never finishes. No one ever actually says, how is worship? Yeah, we're finished. You're just, you're just taking a break. You're not actually finished. You don't end. would also submit this. That this is also why, for all of eternity, God will appear to us if I might put it this way, ever knew the moment, the sensation, the delight of something wonderful and new. God will ever be new to you. Yes, even now his mercies are new every morning, but there's going to be a freshness, almost a, if you know this language from food, when you reach a bliss point, when you're eating a great meal where you've had enough, but you're not over full and you're still thoroughly enjoying it. Whatever that brief moment is, uh, this is what the enjoyment of God is for eternity. Bliss point enjoyment. A God who is ever new and whose glories are endless. A second text I want to add to this that's often brought up when we consider God's measureless glory is Isaiah chapter 40. And I want to look at that little section of verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17 of Isaiah 40. The prophet says this, or God through the prophet who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is 
the maker of all, um, God himself, the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He's the one who measures it out. He says, as it were, the span of the heavens, here to here, the weight of the mountains, just so. Um, the amount of the waters takes his hand and, as it were, pours out a bit of water. And what God does for the world is God doesn't just make the world be. He measures the world out. He gives the world its measure. God takes the size of the world and measures the world by giving it its measure. Now the question is, does the world, and let's, let's be more specific, do you return the favor? He measures you. Do you, in turn, measure him? And he says, in fact, that's, it's not that kind of relationship. Verse 13, who, literally, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor informed him, and then he goes on to speak about how the Lord is not informed or taught uh, by his own creation. He measures things, we don't measure him. He gives us our boundaries, but we don't, in turn, size him up or measure him. He goes on a little further and makes a, a comparison contrast in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Just a brief word on this. This is not hyperbole. In fact, because between that which is finite and that which is infinite, there is no commensurability. That's a word you need in your vocabulary if you don't have it. There is no commensurability between the creature and God. The distance between you and God is infinite, incalculable, immeasurable. Even the dust on the, dust on the scales and all the nations a drop in the bucket, if there's any exaggeration, that's the exaggeration, but it's not overstating it. If anything, it's understating it. Look at verse 17 for just a moment. All the this, is a, this is getting a little closer to it. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless or void. Compared to God and his greatness, we are a comparative void and emptiness. There's an interesting, interesting text just sandwiched in here that sometimes is read over hastily, but I, I want to return now to it. Verse 16 of Isaiah 40. Isaiah says, Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. If you want trees, big trees, lots of timber, and you're living in that region of the world, Lebanon is where you go for the wood. The cedars of Lebanon were famous uh, and greatly desired. And what he's saying here in verse 16 is something like this. Cut down all the trees, kindle countless altars, slay innumerable beasts, and light sacrifices of praise beyond measure seemingly to God, and you will not have begun to approach his worth. You ever notice in scripture that when people praise God, God never says, hey, uh, enough everybody. Stop with the, aren't you overdoing it? You know, when, if a friend praises you and it's a little effusive and you might blush, God never blushes at the praise we give him, because we never overdo it. Slay every beast, cut down every tree, ignite every altar. The world will never, in fact, give him enough worship. And here's the thing about this. God is greater than your greatest thought of him. God is more worthy than the most worthy thought you have of him. That our thoughts but pale in comparison to the true worth. And this is why the world, as it were, is not enough. 
In Daniel 4.35, after Nebuchadnezzar had been so amazingly humbled by the Lord and he was restored and his mind and sensibilities came back to him, he begins to speak praise of the Most High God. And he says this because he had been proud in his own heart. and He thought that he was really something, certainly more than a void, which is what the Bible calls us. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are before him accounted as nothing. That's what this doctrine does. This doctrine means that God is immeasurable in greatness, incomparably immeasurable um, in greatness. Something similar to this is said in Zophar's rebuke of Job. Perhaps you remember these words in Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Job is, uh, how should we say, Job is speaking as if God's thoughts are his thoughts and his ways his ways, and Zophar rebukes him for it. Now, later on, Elihu will rebuke him for it, and then after that, God himself, beginning in, verse, in chapter 38, will rebuke him for it. But this is how Zophar rebukes him. He says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They're as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Like Isaiah, uh, who says that we're a comparative nothing before him, or Nebuchadnezzar, who says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before him, this is a, a comparative statement being made by Zophar, and his point isn't this. His point isn't that God is a little bigger than the world. He just simply points to the things that are very difficult for us to measure, things that are empirically available but difficult to size up. And you can think here particularly of astrophysics, I'm not going to be much help for you as you think about astrophysics, but nevertheless, you can think about it. Um, the possible, right now, the James Webb satellite is sending back pictures that are, you know, we loved Hubble, but th this is the next generation of wonder and amazement of the visible and material world that can be seen. And we're seeing some things now for the first time, and we're realizing that our measurements and our, our understandings are perhaps wildly inaccurate. Measuring the visible world is actually quite difficult. Some of you know how this is. I mean, you, you never pick the right bowl for the leftovers, okay? It's, it's, always, there's always just, it's always either way too big or way too small. You always miss the right one. You just, you're not good at sizing things up. Well, extrapolate that out to the visible cosmos and imagine how difficult that would be. And I think this is what Zophar is saying. God's greatness exceeds even the greatest thing that you could imagine trying to measure. He goes, it's, it's even stranger than that though. He says that God's greatness is deeper than Sheol. Again, this isn't just distance. Sheol is the netherworld, the realm of the dead, the place of shadows, the dreaded, the dreaded realm of the dead. And there's a kind of, put it this way, there's a beyondness, a mystique in Sheol. And he's saying, if you think Sheol and the netherworld is beyond you and inexplicable to you, you can't even imagine how inexplicable the being of God is. Unfathomable greatness. A final passage on this before we then look particularly at what we mean by infinite can be found in 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. This is uh, the dedication of Solomon's temple, and Solomon leads the people of Israel in a beautiful prayer at the dedication of this temple. And maybe a, a couple words should just be said about this temple. 
This temple is an unparalleled structure, certainly, certainly greater and more grandiose than any that the people there had seen. Now, you could, find, you could find bigger structures. You could travel down to Giza, where the pyramids were already quite old and probably even in some state of disrepair even at this time. Uh, so there were certainly greater human structures, but arguably not houses this great and not houses this beautiful. You can think about all the details of how to carve the capitals and to ornament and fit out the temple with beauty. And Solomon finally, after so many years of work, leads the people in dedication of this house. And in fact, just before uh, the text that we're going to read, back up in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Kings 8, Solomon says this, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. We serve a lofty God. We serve a God who's exalted over all the earth and who, as it were, cannot be measured by his own creation. And yet here, Solomon undertakes to build, no insult intended, but a box on a hill for God. Okay, a big box on a hill and a very pretty big box on a hill, but it's still a big box on a hill for God. That seems like the kind of thing you couldn't build for God. Four walls, a floor, and a roof. And yet, because God is lofty, he builds a house that is lofty. Not infinite. I mean, there was outside the temple. That was a real place. Court of the Gentiles, for instance, or City of David. Um, it's obviously not an infinite house. I'm not even sure what that would mean. Uh, but it's lofty because the God whose presence is manifested there in the, in the Shekinah glory cloud is a lofty God. But just in case we misunderstand what's going on here, this is not like what goes on with the gods of the nations, where the gods of the nations are really helped and really, really outfitted and taken care of, so to speak, by those who serve them. They haven't boxed God up, and they certainly haven't contained him. And Solomon makes a point of this in verse 27. And I just want to say one more thing about verse 27. It's a kind of parenthetical theological excursus in the middle of the prayer, but it's a parenthetical theological excursus that is part of the prayer. So this is, not, this is not a marginal note added after the prayer. This is part of the prayer, and this is what Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Now, Solomon doesn't despair. God has been pleased to, as it were, condescend to show his glory through the Shekinah cloud in that realm. Um, and so the house is a meaningful manifestation of God's presence. But let's be under no illusions that this brilliant manifestation of God's glory and God's presence is in fact a containment of it. Certainly God condescends to show his glory in the created order. He does it in the pillar and in the cloud and in the Shekinah cloud, he does it in the still small voice on the side of Mount Horeb to Elijah when he's running from Jezebel. He does it when he comes and sits down and has a meal in theophanic form outside of the tents at Mamre with Abraham and Sarah. Certainly God condescends to draw near to us in finite structures and to reveal his glory to us in that way. And yet in none of these cases... Is God actually, as it were, measured in a one-to-one -one way by the manifestations of his glory? Listen to these words from Job 
in Job 26. I'll I'll just pick it up in verse 9, speaking of God's greatness. No, verse 8. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon. He spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared, and his hand has pierced the fleeing servant. And you, I pause for a moment, and you think to yourself, that's it. That's it. Shaking the heavens. The heavens tremble. He breathes and the heavens are cleared. This is, this is the inner sanctum of God's greatness. Listen to what Job says right after this. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. The fringes of his ways. The loudest, most boisterous, most spectacular, glorious manifestation of God's presence is compared to God himself, but the little dangly thread on the edge of a garment. Listen to this additional line. He says, And how faint a word we hear of him. How faint a word. Thunder and lightning and prophets and thus saith the Lord and how faint a word we hear of him. Now I like to say, and how deafening is the faint word. How Faint a word we hear of him, but it's not as if his manifestation of himself is a measure of his being. His manifestations exist in the created order through created phenomena. Words on pages, storms on mountains, inscriptions on stone, power in splitting a sea by sending a great wind and delivering a people alive. Great and mighty deeds, but remember, compared to God's real greatness, his great and mighty deeds are real manifestations of his glory, but they are the fringes of his ways, and they are the faint word. It's as if it's a, we could almost say, you think that's great? You haven't heard anything yet. As you press into the glory of God, this is the wonder of it, and you think that you've gotten deep inside of it, and then you find out that you're barely touching the little fringe hanging on the edge of the garment. This is the greatness and the immeasurableness of our God. The heaven of heavens, which is the most superlative realm of of creation. The place where seraphs cover their faces and fly with two wings and cover their feet with the other two and cry, holy, holy, holy. He says that even that doesn't contain God. The finite does not contain the infinite, no matter how great the finite is. That's the message of scripture with regard to God's greatness. Just sample in a few texts and we could certainly multiply those and spend the afternoon doing it. But I want to move now into the second place and consider that God is infinite in being and what it means to say that he's infinite in being. The Westminster Confession uses this language. Uh, Sometimes there are biblical texts that will use the language of, of infinite Uh, Although, strictly speaking, the term infinite is not a Bible word. I do think that it is a Bible concept, but I don't think that it's a Bible word. Uh, Even Psalm 147.5, which says that God's understanding is infinite, literally says that his his understanding is innumerable. That's actually the the term that it uses. I think infinite is a good rendering of it. But the term infinite is an interesting text, and we might even wonder, as we find it in the confession, why does it add the qualifiers Infinite and in being and perfection, isn't that self-evident? If I say something is infinite, am I not already indicating infinite in being and perfection? So let's talk first and just define some terms uh, and get right into this term infinite. 
the Greeks used the term infinite to indicate the imperfection of a thing. Now you might think to yourself, well, why would they do that? Why would, they, why, would, why would infinity be a sign of imperfection rather than perfection? We say infinite imperfection, but in their understanding, infinite meant imperfection, and basically this is why. Uh, because it meant lacking completeness of actuality or being. So, for instance, if you're reading a book and you get to the last page of the book, the author might have seen fit to conclude the book with a little statement, the end. Or if you read uh, theology books in Latin, I have texts in my library and PDFs, and they end with a little Latin word, finis. Finis, um, and you understand, we get our word finished from this. You are finished, you are complete, you have reached the end of the thing. And to be in finis is in a sense to not have actually completed or reached the end. And so it was an imperfection. It was, a, it was a, an infinite meant non-completeness of being. You haven't finished it yet. You are not fully actual. Something that is incomplete, if, you, if you're taking exam, a series of exams for some certificate that you're trying to earn, and someone might say, have you completed your exams? You might say, oh no, my exams aren't finished yet. A good way to say that would be, oh, they're not finished, hence in to negate finis, infinite. So when the Greeks think about infinity, they think of an imperfection, a non-completeness of being. In fact, what we call finitude, uh, in fact, for them would have meant perfect, finished, and what we call infinitude for them would have meant non-finished, unfinished, not yet fully actual. So it was a term of imperfection, unfinished, incomplete, non-fullness, open to more being. In fact, some even argued, some of the Greek philosophers even argued that the, that the first cause of all things was infinite, but this is what they meant. Um, imperfect and therefore infinite because what the first cause was was matter, and you find this in the pre-Socratic philosophers, and everything comes from matter, and matter is open to being actually many different kinds of things that it isn't. In fact, matter could be one kind of thing and yet open, in fact, the, how, let's make it a little personal. Your own matter, which is currently humankind, is actually open to being other kinds. That is to say, there are ways of being that your matter could be that it currently isn't. If you were to die and be buried in the ground, your matter would metabolize into soil. Uh, and then that soil matter might metabolize into grass. And then a cow's going to come along and eat the grass. And it's going to metabolize the same matter into bovine matter. And you, you get how this, I'm not going to keep the chain going, but you get the idea. So that there's a certain kind of incompleteness. Your matter is defined currently by your nature, human. But it's potentially a different kind of matter. It's potentially soil, potentially grass, potentially ash, etc. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So that if the first cause of all things is in fact some kind of unspecified matter, there's a certain incompleteness, an, an, a non-actualization that characterizes God. And so for them, the first cause of all things was an imperfect open kind of matter that could be many things that it wasn't actually at all. Obviously, Christian theologians do not mean to say that God is lacking in fullness of being. When we say that God is infinite, rather we insist that God is infinite, and this is important, in perfection. 
In other words, we add this qualifier, and in being, we add the qualifier as being in perfection to infinite so as not to confuse it with the kind of poverty of being that might have been connoted by the infinity, well, of matter now. In fact, it's not just the Greeks. There's a certain potential infinity with regard to your matter. Your matter could potentially be the matter of any, con any number of natural forms. There are seemingly countless kinds of things your matter could be the, kind, uh, could be the matter of, um, not human, to which you are open, but not actually that thing. Um, so we could talk about, an inf but that's, a, that's an infinity of openness or of possibility, not an infinity of actuality. In fact, an infinity of not yet actual. So when we say that God is infinite, we're saying that God is actually infinite, and so we say in being and perfection. We're not denying actuality of him, but rather we're denying any end or limit to his actuality. God's uncontainable greatness, as we've read in Holy Scripture, undoubtedly motivates this rather un-Greek-like positive notion of infinity. The great 17th century English Presbyterian Edward Lee says, infiniteness is such a property in God that he is not limited to any time, place, or particular nature and being. This is I'm going to interrupt Lee for a second. Um, Lee is not unusual in this regard. In fact, it's very customary for our Reformed forebears, as the medievals before them, to insist that because God is infinite, he's not a kind of being. We're not saying that he's not being. We're saying that he's not, as it were, categorized into this sort, because that would mean then he lacks the sortal peculiarities of all the other kinds. Back to Lee. He says, or it is that whereby God is free altogether from limitation of time, place, or degree. Primarily it means that God has no limits of essence or actuality. And then sometimes we apply infinity to space and we say omnipresent. or We, we apply infinity to time and we say temporal or timelessly eternal. So the question is, why must God be infinite? Besides the texts that we've read, which are the ones most theologians go to first to prove that he's immeasurable, theologians have also offered several reasons why he couldn't be a bounded being. And I want to just survey a few uh, from the Dutch Reformed theologian Petrus van Maastricht. For the students among you, there's a current translation project of van, Maastricht, uh, van Maastricht's theoretical practical theology that I highly recommend um, that you uh, not just look at. It's a purchase it's a purchase-worthy uh, set of books. Van Maastricht says this, reasons why God must be infinite. For he is first the absolutely first being who for this reason does not admit a prior being which would bound and limit him. So his point is, first off, God is the first being. Therefore, there's nothing outside of God that causes God and therefore puts a limit on God. God limits the world by giving it its measure. But nothing gives God his measure because he's the giver of all, not the receiver of. He gives to all, but he receives from none. God is a boundless plentitude of being who gives to all life, breath, and all things, but who receives nothing in return from the creature. God gives to us, but what do we give him? We, we respond, we give him praise, we give him glory, but we don't actually add new glory to him. We just simply reflect and reverberate, as it were, the glory that he has shown forth into our lives. Secondly, Maastricht says that he's infinite because he's independent bounding and limiting all things, and thus limited by no one. God's the limiter, not the limited, and he limits things by giving them their being. Thirdly, Maastricht says, he is simply the most perfect being 
While when it comes to finite beings, we can, find, we can think of something more perfect since we recognize that a finite being by definition lacks some sort of perfection. So his point is this. In any being where there is a could be but isn't, do you know what I'm after? I could be a brain surgeon, but I'm not. Right. I could be a train conductor. Maybe some of you are. Um, but I could be a train conductor, but I'm not. I could have been an astrophysicist. I could have been a baseball player. I could have, you know what? You could have been a lot of things, couldn't you? And you aren't most of them. I don't mean to discourage you, but most of your potentialities aren't actualized. You, are, like you, you potentially climbed Mount Kilimanjaro when you were 30 years old. Like in a room this size, maybe a couple. Um, not, I, I didn't do it. Um, you, potentially, you potentially went to the moon. You could potentially go to the moon. You could, potentially, you could potentially write the great American novel. You could potentially be and do many things that you will never do. Most of what you could do, you never will do. Most of what you can be, you never will be. And don't be discouraged. It's just because there are so many possibilities. It's, it's a problem of excess, not deficiency. It's a problem of excess, not deficiency. But it also means, it also means that you could be... If you're, open, if you're open to being more or different, it also means you could be better than you are. You could be more perfect than you are. You could be more complete in being by actualizing that thing that you could be but aren't. Is that, I just blame Maastricht for this. I know this is, it's right after lunch and it's the opening of the conference. Um, fourthly, he says the fourth reason he must be infinite is because Jehovah, he is Jehovah being, now I'll come back to this in a few moments with the text we opened with, that is all being that there is or that can be conceived, being that by necessity infinite. All being is in him in a boundless way. Fifthly, Maastricht says, he created the world from nothing, which demands an infinite power that removes the infinite distance between nothing and something, and by that very fact, an infinite essence. This is an interesting argument. It shows up actually throughout Christian history. It's a very common argument, and it goes something like this. If God creates the world from nothing, then what kind of power or operation will it take to, as it were, bridge the distance from nothing at all to something? What's the distance between nothing and something? It's infinite in a way, and so only an infinite operation, an infinite act, is going to be sufficient to achieve something like creation ex nihilo. But then, of course, operations don't just, you know, doings don't just float around on their own and do things. Doings are always the doings of some, someone with a nature who makes, it, who makes them able to do. And so you do things in virtue of your nature or your essence. Your essence is actually what supplies all the power of doing something. It's because you're human that you can think rationally. It's, it's because you're bipedal that you can hop on a pogo stick. Do you get what I'm after? In other words, like that's, well, I'm sure there are some circus animals that could do it, but you, you get what I'm talking about. Um, it's, because you're a, it's because you are a certain way by nature that you're able to perform a certain operation. If God performs an operation bringing something from nothing, and that requires an infinite operation, only one who is an infinite being can, can perform an act requisite that requires infinity. And then his final argument. Everything that we can observe in the creature that argues for limit and lack in them entirely disqualifies them from being God. In other words, let me put it a little differently. God's name is I am, not I could be. Not I could be. 
I could be means you aren't. It's a lack. It's a limitation. Anything that indicates limitation in the creature is not befitting of God. For example, lack in essence, knowledge, presence, duration, power, on account of which they're called finite. But right reason, Maastricht said, would not deduce that such a lack applies to God. We press in a little further then um, into this finitude or infinitude and really ask the question then, if we're going to say God is infinite and we're going to deny finitude of him, because that's what we're doing. When we say that he's infinite, we are denying finitude of him, then we might want to ask the question, just to kind of get a little backstory on this, then what is finitude? In other words, how do I recognize finitude when I see it, and how do I know this is finite? Uh, and there are ordinarily, broadly, two answers given to that, um, really one answer of two sorts. If it is beholden to a cause, if it depends on something not itself to be itself, then it has its being measured out to it by whatever causes it. So if, if I ask the average Christian, um, how do you know you're finite? Um, maybe the first answer a Christian will give is, well, I'm a creature. God made me. Uh, and that is, in fact, the right answer because God measured out your being to you, life, breath, all things, body, soul. And so God placed a measure on you when he created you. And so you recognize I'm finite, I'm limited in being by the fact that my being is measured in as much as it's caused by something. But there's another way of measuring finitude as well, which I want to say that's an extrinsic measure. An extrinsic source of finitude is the fact that we have a maker who gave us our measure. But then there's also an intrinsic way of being finite, an intrinsic way of seeing finitude, which is to say there is an intrinsic structure of finitude. In other words, there's a limitation in me, not just because I was made, but because of how I am. Francis Turretin, when he introduces the topic of divine infinity in his Elenctic Theology, says the infinity of God follows from his simplicity. And he's talking here just logically how we think this through. The infinity of God follows from his simplicity. Now, just follow his rationale for a moment if I can unfold it. And it's something like this. In the confession, in fact, right after we say God is infinite in being and perfection, we say that he is without body, parts, or passions. That statement that he's without parts is actually saying that God is not a bit of this and a bit of that put together. God is not a collection of bits, even metaphysical bits, that sort of come together in a perfect, great-making set of properties. In fact, God isn't a set of properties, and he's not a bundle of bits. And here's why. Now, you might think, well, I've always thought that he wasn't a bundle of bits, but let me tell you why you were right then. Uh, he's not a bundle of bits, and by bits, I don't just mean material bits. I mean anything, I mean a part. Anything in a whole that is less than the whole without which the whole would be somehow different than it is. That is a part. The way that parts relate to wholes is that parts are two things, less than wholes, and also wholes depend upon their parts. Parts fund the unity, parts fund the being of the whole. So I have parts, like one of my accidental parts is this jacket. This jacket gives me a state of being that without the jacket I wouldn't have. I don't wear it to bed. I woke up this morning, I didn't have my jacket on. I was not jacketed, and now I am, full existential sense of I'm wearing, I am a jacketed individual for a while longer. Um, this, add, this is a part. It adds to me, a, a, the, the complete package is, I can't give you the complete package, but James, bearded, balding, talking, jacketed man. 
That's just a, that's just a short bundle list of you know, what I am. Uh, but none of those is me. Maybe James, but what I am is I'm actually a collection of body and soul, plus a whole bunch of accidental states of being, like speaking and standing and balding and jacketed. And what I really am is I'm a whole bunch of bits put together. And actually, I depend on every one of my bits for some aspect of my being. Things composed of parts depend upon their parts for the being that they have in some way. We say that God is not composed of parts because God does not depend on what is not God to be God. Things, not, things composed of parts, a, a Toyota Corolla depends on what's not a Toyota Corolla, like a fuel injector or, or a, a steering column to be a Toyota Corolla. But God doesn't depend on what is not himself to be himself because he is the first being. But it is in fact in the, it is in fact in the composition of parts that we discover the intrinsic structure of finitude. That this part limits that part. My body, listen to this, is not my soul, and my soul is not my body. How do I know? Because they will one day be separated, and my soul will survive that separation. Therefore, I know my soul is not my body, my body is not my soul, but I'm actually a composite of body and soul. Which means there's something in me that's less than me that's actually funding my being. And in fact, in so much as my soul is not my body... That means that my body isn't all of me, and my soul, in a certain sense, is a part of me, thereby putting a limit on the other part of me. You ever notice this with parts? At a, at a certain point, they have to share space with each other. <laughs> at a certain point, if this part is doing, if this part is there, it's displacing, so to speak, this other part. Um, parts, as such, are limited. Parts are not infinite. Parts are not boundless. Otherwise, holes couldn't be greater than they are. So what is a part? A part is always a finite unit of being that funds some kind of composite entity. But if God is the first cause and not composed of parts, then he must be boundless. This again from Maastricht. For to have parts and to be infinite is a manifest inconsistency. For these parts will be either finite in their greatness or not, or uh, uh, finite in their greatness or not infinite, that is finite, a mean is not allowed between contraries. And so if you say these parts are infinite, then you shall say from many infinite things one infinite thing comes together. And if you should choose that they are finite, then you will say that from many finite things one infinite thing is put together. Which of these is more absurd? Let them decide. He rejects both. Um, you don't get one infinite from a whole bunch of infinites in any way a whole bunch of infinites is impossible. And also, if it's a bunch of finite parts, you don't get infinity by adding a bunch of finitude together. A bit of this and a bit of that will never get you to infinitude because infinitude is boundlessness and bits limit other bits. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So to the text that we began with in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I, just, I want to be brief, but just consider the implications of this name. This name is revealed after God has, God has come down into the burning bush or the unburning up burning bush and says to Moses that he's come down to deliver his people and, he sends, and he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Moses says, who am I? Uh, and then uh, effectively, I'm not sufficient for these things, which of course is true, but that's not the point. Uh, God says, certainly I will be with you. In other words, I will be your sufficiency for this great exodus, this great redemption that I'm proposing to you. Uh, and then Moses asks a question. He says, the people of Israel may ask me, I always say the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will ask me, what is his name? What am I to say to them? And he says, and this is what I think, just quickly, this is what I think the children of Israel are going to be asking in this scenario. Um, something like, 
What is he like? You say the God of our fathers has sent you here to deliver us from Pharaoh. This is a seemingly impossible thing that you're proposing. With man, this seems impossible. This is Pharaoh. This is the most powerful nation on the, on the planet. Uh, and they've got a lot of building projects going on. And we're their labor. So how are you going to do this? Who, what is God like such that we should trust him for this almost impossible sounding thing that you're saying? And God says, the words we read earlier, he said to Moses, I am that I am or who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let me just pause for one second and just say, this is a, this is a strange name. This is a strange, I don't, by strange I don't mean any insult, but just to say this is a, this sounds like a verbal statement. It's a, say, I am, I am what? I'm waiting for the name. No, that's just it. That is the name. I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you, or sent you uh, to them. Um, I am who I am. There's some, I, I won't get into the niceties of translation issues on this. Uh, Durham in his commentary on Exodus says maybe one way to render this would be, I am the ising one. That's my all-time favorite rendering, but not, not advisable for Sunday morning uh, usage. I am the ising one. In other words, uh, when usually when I say I am, I usually contract that to some particular state of being. So you, you could say, are you standing? And I could say, I am. Understood, I am standing. You could say, are you speaking? I am. Understood that the speaking is... In other words, all of my... Is, this is what I notice, and this is probably true for you too. Just bear with me a moment. All of my ising... Being, I know, but I'm going to say ising. All of my ising is actually contracted to a this or a that. I am human contracted now to kind. I am standing, contracted to position. I am speaking, contracted to action. Um, I am hurting, contracted to passion. I am, in other words, I am married, contracted to relation. I am a father, contracted to a different relation. I am a son, contracted to yet a different relation. In other words, all of my isings are actually contracted to this or that state of being. And what I am is I'm a collection of contracted states of being. That's the package. It's what it is, folks. That's the package. I'm, I'm a contracted state of being. I'm a bit of this and I'm a bit of that, and all of my is is actually contracted to a this, that, or the other. God says, this is my name. I am. In other words, I think underneath this is the implication that I'm not like you. I'm not contracted. I'm not, I'm not an I am that's actually contracted to this species or to this kind uh, or to this state there's a boundlessness. It, oh, it sounds like an open-ended statement. I am, and you're waiting for the rest of it. I am, go ahead and finish it. No, that's it. That is finished. The I am finishes the name. In other words, and now you can imagine, people. that sounds incomplete. That sounds like I'm open to being something. But actually, this is what we're after. This is, infinite, this is infinitude in being, not infinitude in potential. I am, but nothing in particular for a creature would be potential. I am potentially, you know, A, B, C, but until I actually say I am this or I am that, but God just says I am. There's an unboundedness in this name. The open-endedness is, it's, maybe that's not even the right way to think of it. It's not so much as an open-ended name as it is an unended name. An unended name. The one about whom there is no last great thing the one whose limit can't be found because it's not even there. 
Consider also what we mean uh, in, in our third major point uh, coming now toward our conclusion that God is infinite in perfection. Uh, a little bit on terminology, this word too has another meaning uh, in, the, in the etymological sense. It actually means that which is thoroughly made. Uh, fact is a made thing. Fact is the same word. Perfect means something thoroughly or completely made. In fact, I remember some years ago reading in Francis Turretin, and he says at one point in his theology, God is perfect, comma, as it were. As it were? You mean not just perfect? Why does he say as it were? It almost makes it sound like I've got to qualify this. Do I have to qualify? Yes, we do have to qualify this because the word etymologically means completely made. And God isn't made. He's the maker of all. So why do we use this word perfect? Well, you understand probably the way you use the word perfect nowadays is not simply completely made. But what you mean is um, is complete or Fully actualized is probably more the idea. When you say something's per- that was a that was a perfect game, you just say that that measured up to everything that a game like that ought to be. Or if I just say that was a perfect pitch, uh, or that was a that was a perfect song, or, or you know you get to the end of the recording and they say perfect. You know what do we mean? Is what we mean is it is now fully actual, living up to or realizing everything that it ought to be. And this is actually what we mean when we say it of God. We mean that God is perfect in the sense of he is all that he should be without remainder, to put it back in the other terms. He's not I am and I'm not yet, but hopefully soon, with a whole bunch of hyphens in there. That's not his name. I am. Fullness. Fullness. Plentitude. That also is the sense of perfect, and we use it in that sense. So what are we to think of his plentitude of being? Stephen Charnock, in his classic, The Existence and Attributes of God, says, Every creature, even the highest creature, is infinitely short of the perfection of God. For whatsoever excellency they have is finite and limited. It is but a spark from the sun, a drop from the ocean. But God is unboundedly perfect in the highest manner, without any limitation, and therefore above spirits, angels, the highest creatures that have been made by him, an infinite sublimity, a pure act, I'll interrupt him, meaning not an act contracted by potentiality, that's what he means, an act that is sheer, full, boundless actuality, to which nothing can be added and from which nothing can be taken. It's a customary uh, thing in some of the older theologians to come across statements in which they'll say all the perfections of creatures are in God. But they will then qualify this uh, and they'll say uh, in a super eminent fashion, which is to say they're in God but not the way that they're in you. In me they are parts. Those perfections of my being, those gifts that God has distributed are but the bits and parts that are finite and mutually contracting. But in God, all the perfection that is in me is in God, but not the way that it is in me. In God, it's in him unboundedly. So we say he's infinite in being and perfection. In fact, sometimes you you find this reasoning. The medievals would often say that there's nothing in the effect that isn't first in the cause. Or if I can translate that to regular person's talk, um, you can't give what you ain't got. Okay? You, can't, you can't make to be what you don't have to give to be. Um, and so the idea is something like this. If, if there's something good in the effect, it has to pre-exist either formally or virtually in its cause in some fashion. You find this reasoning, for instance, in Psalm 94. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? 
He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. And there's, the, the idea is something like this. Man sees, man hears, man knows. Can we think that God doesn't know? He's the one who makes us know. How could he who makes us know not know? He gives, the, he gives to us the knowledge he has, not the knowledge that he lacks. We find this also, I think, in statements like uh, Psalm six, or Romans 16, where Paul calls God the only wise God, or Mark and uh, Jesus in Mark 10 says to the rich young ruler, no one is good but God alone, or 1 Timothy 6, God alone possesses immortality. And you think to yourself, but we're going to enjoy immortality, and there are humans that are good, and we have some wisdom, but when he says God alone, meaning God has these originally of himself in an unbounded manner, God does not have his perfections as bits or even as literal perfections. He has the fullness of being, but unmade, uncreated. Turretin says, for since he has every perfection which can be possessed, it is evident that nothing can be conceived better and more perfect. Thus, he must necessarily be infinite because an infinite good is better than a finite. A final set of considerations then as we come to a close, some of the practical implications of this doctrine. The first one has come out as we've gone along is that we do not comprehend God. And I think this is, this is important to, to get a handle on incomprehensibility, or if I can be a little facetious with it, to comprehend that you do not comprehend let that be the first thing. I think Basil of Caesarea said something to that effect. Let it be a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge. So says Augustine. Something important in this, God's infinity means that we will never comprehend him, size him up, discover his limits. I think it is, in fact, the spirit of idolatry that wants to, as it were, find out and know the limits of its God. To, know, to, as it were, box up their gods and to comprehend their gods. But if God is infinite in glory then he's uncontainable by our minds. I'm not just saying this to give an excuse for everyone this week who doesn't, you know, give you everything you were hoping for, uh, that God's incomprehensible, but simply to say that even as we perceive that he's incomprehensible, I don't comprehend his incomprehensibility. I know God is infinite. I know why the first cause of all things and the one who's immeasurable must be infinite, but I don't comprehend that infinity. Now, what kind of response should we have? Um, you could despair over that. I submit to you that that's the heart of an idolater, that wants a God that is comprehensible, a God that is finite, a God that can be boxed up and manipulated. Or you can respond this way, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You can respond with the joy and the enthusiasm that in fact I will never run out of praise and I will never run out of great things to say and I will never grow bored and this will never be tedious to me because the God that I serve is the one who is boundless and endless in being. His good isn't finite and there is no last great thing about him and so there is no, as it were, tedium or boredom in the worship of God. Secondly, it teaches us the folly of seeking any other good for final satisfaction. Edward Lee says it so well. He says, he who hath God for his God hath all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. He contains in himself all being in that supereminent fashion. If you want good, get God. David says, beside you I have no good. And he says, this is my inheritance. This is my great reward. And the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. God is the portion of my inheritance. If you get God and you hold on to him in faith as he has made himself over to you in the gospel, then you actually get a boundless, infinite reward and delight. It is because of his infinity that we give to him 
great and endless praise. And it is because of his infinity that we can depend upon him for life and breath and all things. It's because of his perfect self-sufficiency and his infinitude that he is the one who is all-sufficient for all of our concerns. Let's go to him and thank him in prayer. We thank you, O Lord, and bless you, O God, that you have revealed yourself to us. And even more than just revealed, you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel, that you have sent your own son to reconcile us to yourself, that we might have you for our God, that we, finite creatures that we are, might be given a boundless inheritance and a boundless good. Lord, we do draw near to you now in faith, knowing that you supply our every need because you are the one who is boundless in being. Lord, you are not without, but you have all that we need, and so we do depend on you for life, breath, and all things. Lord, continue, we pray, to give us breath that we might use it to praise your holy name in the remainder of